0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North.
1: Coming up for months, Marco Mendicino has told us that it was police who requested the Emergencies Act, but now apparently we all misunderstood him. Plus, independent Ontario legislator Bobby Ann Brady.
0: The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now.
1: Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's Most Reverend Talk Show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North. Thursday, June 9th, 2022. If you have not been able to tell, we are doing another on... I don't even want to say on location, because I'm not in a particularly exceptional location. I'm just not where I usually am. Which, if you're listening on the podcast, you're wondering, like, what is everyone talking about? We also do this in video form. Some people listen to the podcast, I love it. I'm so grateful to people that watch or listen however they choose to, but we are also on video as well. So uh, sometimes I make visual references that might be lost to the to the podcast audience, but we'll try to describe them as best as we can when these things come up. Later on, I'm going to be just dipping back in ever so slightly to Ontario politics, but there's a, a bigger picture to it that I want to tackle, which is the era of the independence. Is this something we're entering into uh, because there is an independence? that was elected in the last Ontario election, defeating the Progressive Conservative Party that she had tried to be a candidate for. They didn't want to have her as a candidate, so she said, all right, well, I'm just going to do it my way as an independent, and she won which I think is tremendous we talked about her last week Bobby and Brady the longtime assistant of a longtime PC MPP Toby Barrett so Bobby and Brady will join us later on in the program but I I have to begin by talking about this Marco Mendicino flare-up that in some ways is hilarious but it's also infuriating because this is what's passing for policy this is what's passing for government now the Public Safety Minister in Canada is a very important role this is the person that oversees canada's national security public safety it used to be part of emergency preparedness now they've split that off and let bill blair have his little sandbox but the public safety minister is the one responsible for overseeing a lot of the domestic security agencies and we have marco mendicino now he was saying things throughout the course of the Freedom Convoy that were simply not true. One of the most notable examples of this was this press conference where Marco Mendocino got up and he started talking about all the evidence he had of a, a violent conspiracy and a network of people in Ottawa that were connected to the group of people charged with firearms offense in Coots, Alberta, and that they were all planning some very terrible things in Ottawa. And when reporters at this press conference asked him for details... He kept walking back the claim so much, so much, so much, and then by the end of it, after reporters, to their credit, quite doggedly pursued this, by the end of it, he had completely walked it back, and he had like walked so far back, I think he was in like the year 1994, and then he said, well, you yeah, know, I've seen some rhetoric on Twitter, that was basically how it ended, so I don't think he's that bright, Or I just don't think he's all that prepared, or it might be a combination of both. Because ministerial staffers, they do all these briefing notes and briefing memos, and they try to get their bosses to read them and memorize the talking point. And I don't think he even reads those, because I don't think a staffer in their right mind would put a minister out that cannot answer such fundamentally basic questions. So this is all a lengthy preamble to what happened this week when Marco Mendicino's own deputy minister... Now, a deputy minister is a bureaucrat who is ideally nonpartisan and is there regardless of who the minister is. And they're the ones that handle the civil service side of the department. Marco Mendicino's deputy minister said to the parliamentary committee investigating the Emergencies Act that Marco Mendicino was mis- misunderstood, not mistaken, was misunderstood when we all thought, because we were misunderstanding him, so he was misunderstood and we misunderstood him, when we thought that he was saying that law enforcement asked for the Emergencies Act. Now, this has been an ongoing trend, and I just want to play some of the greatest hits. Now, this is not an exhaustive clip, but here's just a sampling of what Marco Mendicino has said on this specific issue.
0: We invoked the Act because it was the advice of nonpartisan professional law enforcement. That's the reason why we had to invoke the Emergencies Act and we did so on the basis of nonpartisan professional advice from law enforcement. We were um, following the advice of uh, various uh, levels of, of, the, uh, of law enforcement, including the RCMP.
2: After calling upon the police forces, we invoked the Emergency Measures Act.
0: We wanted to be sure, at bottom, that we were giving law enforcement all of the tools and the resources that they needed it was only after police told us that they needed this special power the ontario association um the canadian association uh, law enforcement was was um was very strong what? i don't want to speak uh, for every last serving member uh, of, of law enforcement but there was a very strong consensus that we needed to invoke
1: the act did you misunderstand that I didn't I understood it perfectly clearly I understood that so clearly he's saying that law enforcement asked for the emergencies act the government asked law enforcement what they thought law enforcement said we want the emergencies act he says it over and over again he said it at press conferences he said it at the house of commons he said it on committee. And then you fast forward to this week and the deputy minister is saying, no, 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 he was misunderstood, what he actually meant. What he, what he meant to say was that law enforcement asked for some of the tools in the Emergencies Act. Okay, well, first off, that's not what he said. And secondly, that's also not what law enforcement has said. Brenda
2: Lucky, Did you ask the government or representatives for the invocation of the Emergencies Act? No, there was never a question of requesting the Emergency Act. There was I thought, a question Sorry, that I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, with. but uh, I'm sorry. So you never asked for it. Do you know of any other police leadership that asked specifically the government for, for the invocation? No, we actually reached out to various police agencies when there was talk about some of the authorities within that they were proposing. And, of course, we were consulted because we were the ones who would be using those authorities. So we were consulted to see if they would be of any use to police in in the context of the Freedom Convoy.
1: Ottawa Police Chief Steve Bell. Did the Ottawa Police make a request to the federal government to invoke the Emergencies Measures Act, yes or no? So we were involved
0: in conversations with our partners and with the political, um, the political ministries. Uh, we didn't make a direct request uh, for the Emergencies Act.
1: Former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly. Did yourself or anyone in the OPS request
0: the invocation of the Emergency Act? I did not make that request. I'm not aware of anybody else in the Ottawa Police Service who did.
1: Pretty much every single member of the law enforcement community over the last however many months we've been doing this has rejected, has outright rejected what the government has said, which is that law enforcement was pushing for the Emergencies Act. And it's actually shameful. I mentioned earlier that a deputy minister is supposed to be nonpartisan. It's quite shameful that a deputy minister is right now shilling and running political spin, running political interference for the minister. Because all of these police officers, they appeared and they knew what they were saying was the wrong answer to the government. They knew it was an inconvenient answer to the government, but they said it anyway because it was the truth. They didn't mince words. They didn't jump around and say like, well, I may maybe what he was referring to. They just said, did you ask for this? No. Did you know anyone who asked for this? No. Did anyone in your office ask for this? No. That was what they were saying. Because you can't find a middle ground on a binary thing? Binary? Did law enforcement ask for it, Yes or no? Marco, Marco Manicino says, yes, every member of the law enforcement community who's been asked this question says no. So the deputy minister should have also come right out and said, I don't know what he was talking about, or you'll have to ask him. Because the context of this was that the deputy minister also knew that law enforcement were not asking for this. So government was proactively pushing this. And that's the part that the government doesn't want us to know. One of the whole problems with this inquiry, as we've talked about in the past, is that they do not want this so-called independent, broad, in-depth inquiry to have access to cabinet documents. Now, cabinet documents are these documents that are normally protected as secret, cabinet secrets. It's an ongoing thing. It's not exclusive to the Liberals. And there are very, very narrow circumstances in which you'd violate or compromise the secrecy and the sanctity of cabinet. And one of them is if the government is willing to do it voluntarily. Which, if you're talking about a broad inquiry that you want to have access to everything to leave no stone unturned, they should have access to secret cabinet documents. Especially when we know this was a decision. The decision to invoke the Emergencies Act that came entirely from cabinet, not from law enforcement, not from the civil service. It came from government. So they don't want people to see the cabinet documents because I think what people will see is that it was the liberals that wanted this. It was the government that wanted this. It was Justin Trudeau, maybe Marco Mendicino, maybe he's just a passenger along for the ride. I don't know. I I don't look at him and see Einsteinian levels of genius here. In fact, I look at him and see quite the opposite. I feel that Canada, if you're looking to him as the one that's going to keep you safe, you should be looking around and being like, eh, maybe I should keep myself safe first. So that's, I mean, you can laugh all you want at it. And I would encourage you to do that, but also understand the seriousness of this and that we right now have a government that's trying to just pull one over on us. That's trying to pretend the police were demanding. And by the way, I should say, even if police were demanding this, that doesn't make it right, even if poli- because police all the time would love to have powers that are uh, overzealous, that are sweeping, that may make their jobs easier, that would come at the expense of civil liberties or due process. Uh, because again, police don't want to be hampered by a lot of these things that they would probably see as getting in the way of their jobs, even though these things are overwhelmingly part of the system and required in a just and rule-of-law-based society. But the, the point of this is that even if police asked for it, it wouldn't justify it. But the fact that police didn't ask for it pulls the rug out from under the liberal narrative that this was not a partisan thing, that this was not something they wanted. They were just saying, oh, we asked the experts. It's the same as, oh, the doctors wanted us to lock down. We didn't want to lock down. Oh, Teresa Tam wants the vaccine. Okay, we we didn't do that. It's them trying to abdicate responsibility for their unpopular decisions to other people and not have to bear the consequences of that. But when those, I mean, this is like the equivalent of the government saying, well, we didn't want to put a vaccine mandate for air travel, but uh, you know what? Doctors told us. And then every doctor that comes before the committee said, "I didn't say it. I didn't say. It, I didn't say. It. Did you say that? No, I didn't say." It. And that's what they're doing here. They're saying, "Oh yeah, well, law enforcement told us. Well, who? If not the Ottawa Police, not the OPP, not the RCMP, none of the people they know. It's almost like it's a complete work of fiction. Not almost. It is." And Marco Mendocino has been selling this line, not convincingly, but he's been selling the line. And now his deputy minister, I mean, ultimately has thrown him under the bus, but his deputy minister wouldn't, and this is the part that I think should be very frustrating, shouldn't have tried to spin the line. The deputy minister tried to cover for Marco Mendocino. And and it's it's our problem. It's like the Trudeau thing of like everything's a learning opportunity for other people. It's no no no. You all misunderstood him. <laughs> to adapt that old line, uh, who are you going to believe, me or your lying ears? Not eyes this time. Me or your lying ears? And and they want us to believe them. They want us to believe Marco Menacino, They want us to believe what he says now not what he said at every other point in the process. Uh, Dane Lloyd, who is a Conservative Shadow Minister, asked Marco Mendicino directly about this. I I I'm this is a thing where I actually did misunderstand what Marco said in response. For Sturgeon River Parkland.
0: Uh. Mr. Speaker, our memories are very clear on this side of the house. The minister repeatedly stated that police recommended that the government invoke the emergencies act. But now we know that not a single police force in this country made that recommendation. The minister has had multiple opportunities to clarify, but he stood by his statement. And now his deputy minister is saying, well, the minister was misunderstood. (laughs) Who is telling the truth? The Public Safety Minister or his most senior public servant? Yeah. The minister public Mr. Speaker, I want to be absolutely clear that last winter, when we saw an unprecedented public order emergency in the opinion of law enforcement, We filled the gaps that existed within authorities which were not effective at the time to restore public safety. Prior to invoking the Emergencies Act, we sought the advice, as any responsible government would do, prior to invoking the act. And you heard Commissioner Lucky say that we needed, for example, power to compel tow trucks as a result of protesters who wouldn't leave. I wonder why they wouldn't leave, Mr. Speaker.
1: They wouldn't leave because Conservatives were egging them on to stay.
0: That was wrong.
1: Ah, did you hear that? That's the sound of goalposts moving rather rapidly. It's no longer about law enforcement asking, As well, they, they asked us to do some stuff and they wanted some of the stuff and we can only do that stuff in the Emergencies Act. And No, it's a load of nonsense. It is an absolute load of nonsense and they still think we are stupid enough to believe it. And I mentioned last week, I have a book coming out on June 24th called The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. And the title is about the convoy. And I'm not doing an inside story about law enforcement. I'm not writing about the ins and outs of the police response. I'm actually writing about the organizers and about how they experienced the convoy, how it came about from inception right through to the end when you had bank accounts frozen, the Emergencies Act being invoked. So when I talk about the law enforcement response, I'm talking about it from a bit of a bigger picture perspective and also as it pertained to the people on the ground that were part of the protest, people that I interviewed and a lot of of those interviews as I was writing the book. But when I talked about this kind of internally, just in my own mind, it's a very weird conversation sometimes. But when I, when I talked about this and, and thought about this as I was writing the book, I went over a lot of things Marco Mendicino had said. And I always assumed that we would get the story at some point that all of it was made up. And I didn't know we'd get it this quickly. I thought we might need to wait until the inquiry was done to find that the whole, oh, police were asking for this thing was a load of nonsense. I'm actually quite grateful that it only took us, what, that convoy ended in February, so March, April, May, June. It only took us like three and a half months. For us to realize that it was only the liberal government that was pushing the emergency act, and I will say just since I mentioned the book it is available for pre-order we were very high up on the Amazon bestseller list right away which I'm told is quite rare for pre-orders I think we've slipped down a little bit now there's an animated book about Justin Trudeau and the emergency act that is at number one right now which is a, a children's book so I'm not gonna tell you to not buy that one I'm just gonna say buy one for the kids and one for you so you can buy the my freedom convoy book for your yourself and then buy the animated book or the picture book for your kid or buy your picture book for your favorite public safety minister because it might be the one that's at their level we've got to take a quick break here when we come back in a couple of moments time we'll talk to bobby ann brady the independent member of provincial parliament you're tuned in to the andrew lawton show Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Well, well, even though the provincial election is behind us, one thing we know is that there was a a significant lack of enthusiasm in voter turnout. We saw this across the board, depressed voter turnout. A lot of people in the media have been wringing their hands, wondering what that means. Is it just general political complacency? Or is it dissatisfaction with the options that were on offer? For the most part, we saw a lot of PCs get reelected. We saw a little bit of a change in some liberal and NDP seats not a huge overwhelming change in the numbers Doug Ford went into the, the election with a majority came out of it with a majority but one of the interesting stories to emerge was in a riding not far from where I live Haldeman Norfolk in southwestern Ontario where an independent mpp bobby ann brady won very handily above the pcs she is the executive assistant or was the executive assistant to toby barrett a longtime progressive conservative mpp but ultimately ran as an independent and got elected as an independent which as we'll talk about it is not an easy thing to do in canadian politics she joins me now bobby Ann. good to talk to you congratulations and thanks for coming on today
2: oh thanks for having me andrew
1: so let's just set the stage here for people in Ontario and even outside of Ontario who are tuning in. You worked with a longtime progressive conservative MPP. How on earth did you end up running against the PCs and running as an independent?
2: Well, I've I've been the Riding association president uh, locally for over twenty years, and um, I, I knew that. Toby was not going to seek re-election in 2022. In fact, he sat down with the Premier's office after the 2018 election and told them that this would be his last run. So come January, I started going to the party and asking, you know, when can we have a nomination night? Keep in mind, uh, nomination nights can no longer be had unless you have uh, the blessing from the party. And I was told I had to wait. That made sense. You know, COVID had reared its ugly head again and, um, you know, I understood. So February I go back and they tell me the same story, March I go back, same story again and that's when I went to Toby and said, Toby, you you need to make a phone call because something's very wrong here. So Toby picked up the phone and he called the Premier and uh, keep in mind that all outgoing MPPs were afforded uh, one of two things. They could either appoint their successor or they could host a, a nomination night. So the premier did say to Toby, um, you know, who would you appoint and Toby said, well, I would appoint Bobby Ann Brady, my EA of 23 years. The premier said, okay, well, I'll get back to you and he did get back a while later and he said, we won't be appointing Bobby Ann Brady and uh, we will appoint uh, the mayor of Haldeman County. And Toby said, "I I cannot condone that. I'm sorry, Mr. Premier, but I cannot condone that. And largely that's because uh, the mayor of Haldeman County has worked against us for several years as conservatives. Um, He's never held a PC membership. He's never come to an event. He's never donated. And he ran federally for the Liberal Party. So we don't recognize him as a conservative. Um, So we went back to the party and we said, you know, the premier has said he's going to appoint the mayor of Haldeman County and we can't condone this. Please afford us a nomination. If the premier wanted me to, you know, run off against uh, his candidate in a nomination, I would have had no problem doing so. And the proof is in the fact that I put my name on the ballot for the general election. And we were told we could not hold a nomination. And that's when I decided, you know what, democracy is being sidelined here. As the writing Association president, how do I attract and retain volunteers to sit around the PC board table when the single most important decision that they can make every four years is taken out of their hands? So I said, we have to challenge this and we have to do it um, so that democracy is upheld. And that's how I became an independent candidate.
1: I know oftentimes when people have been in your situation and then run as an independent or with a a less major party, they're doing it really because they want to make a point or maybe they just want to spite the party that scorned them and and actually try to be a spoiler on the ballot. Did you go into this thinking that you had a shot at winning or were you just trying to make that point and make things a little difficult for the PCs?
2: No, I went in it believing that I could win. And the reason that I believed I could win is because of my 23 years of experience uh, working for for Toby, all of the people that I had helped, thousands and thousands of people that I had helped to have a good reputation in the community. And then, of course, my 20 years as the PC Writing Association president, local conservatives um, knew the work I had been doing and, and knew or felt that I should have been the candidate. So, I remember, um, you know, somebody saying to me in the first week, you know, what do you think you're doing? And I said, I'm going to win. And um, I believed that. I wholeheartedly believed that the team that I had around me, surrounding me, that we we could pull it off. And we certainly did.
1: You know, if there were a candidate that were more conservative, because, I mean, going off of the issues that you flagged with the candidate the PCs fielded, would you have still done this? Or or was your fight, your uh, seeking the uh, candidacy or being the candidate as an independent, was that really more about that fundamental idea that it's the members and the voters that should have a say, not the party?
2: Absolutely. Um, I go back to the, the idea that how do we attract volunteers to the PC party when the grassroots voice no longer matters, and it's something that I've been see- that I've seen over the past uh, you know few years, where the grassroots opinion doesn't really matter anymore. Um, the decisions are being made by one, two, three people, and that is wrong. Uh, you can't take the electorate. You can't take your grassroots, their vote, their money, their time. You can't take that for granted. You can't take advantage of people and expect to be continually rewarded. Looking
1: forward now, I mean, obviously you've been working for a PC MPP for, as you've said, 23 years. Is your intention to continue serving out your term for the next four years as an independent, or would you join the PC caucus?
2: So that's a very, uh, that's an interesting question, one that I was asked quite a bit on the campaign trail. I would say two things. Um, first and foremost, I will not rejoin the PC party until they get um, their house in order. Um you got to do some cleanup and you've got to make sure that the respect is restored. Uh, We need to be a respectful party. And secondly, I I won't walk through the front door of the PC family home once it is clean until the people of Haldeman Norfolk tell me that it's time to do so. So that's not a decision I'd make on my own. It's a decision that the people of Haldeman Norfolk would have to make with me.
1: Do you see yourself in a way as part of the opposition and I don't mean that in the sense of you being a demagogue But you actually using your place as an independent not under the power of any party whip to hold the PCs to account in the legislature
2: Absolutely, and I believe that there is no monopoly on a good idea. So if the PCs have a good idea then I will support it. Of course I will. If the Liberals have a good idea or the NDP have a good idea, I can support them as well. And it gives me an opportunity to represent Holdman Norfolk in a way that it's never been represented before. You know, let's be honest, we see a lot of good ideas pass through, um, you know, the chambers, and, and they're passed up because of party politics. And we have to stop that. Um, all parties have to stop that because it's not good for you and I as the taxpayer. Um, You know, I think there's just a lot of uh, a lack of decorum in the House these days. There's there's a lot of anger and we would just get to such a better deal as that for you know, for the taxpayer, if we could, you know, work together instead of just continually worrying about party lines
1: just looking at that party dimension I I mentioned in the intro here that independents have a very very difficult time getting elected in provincial politics in Ontario in federal politics maybe you'll have an exceptional case where someone will do fairly well but they still fall short of victory you did it you crossed the finish line and obviously nothing is a given you had to work for every vote you had a team around you but you did something that's very difficult to do in in Canada and I'm wondering if you think that things are changing and there is more of a regard for independence or do you think your case was really just the perfect circumstances, the perfect storm at this time that you were able to win with?
2: I hope it's changing. Um, you know, as much as it's great that Haldeman Norfolk made history and and we did it the old-fashioned way, people going out into their community and talking to their friends, neighbours, relatives, because running as an independent, uh, the odds are really stocked, you know, stacked against you. Um, you can't spend money. You can't raise money until the writ is dropped. You can't do anything. And, and other campaigns had weeks weeks on top of me, right? They were out there already knocking on doors, putting up signs uh, as soon as the writ dropped. I had to wait two and a half weeks for my signs. So I really do hope that this is, is changed because one of the things that I said on the campaign trail over and over again is, you know what? I haven't seen anyone be brave. Um, you know, be brave, stand up, do the right thing. And... You know, the people of Haldeman Norfolk uh, behind me did the brave thing. And I kept saying to them, you know what? Courage can be contagious. And I really think that if Haldeman Norfolk, little old Haldeman Norfolk can send, you know, Bobby and Brady to the Ontario legislature as an independent, we can serve as hope that, look, you know what? You don't have to be taken for granted. You don't have to go to the ballot box and tick off the box that all you know, the major parties expect you're going to take off. You can make your own decision. You can vote for that guy or gal who represents you, um, you know, at the community level. And I really do hope that um, this campaign will serve as hope for folks right across our nation because one of the things that folks have been saying to me over the past three years when they call into the office is Bobby and we're worried They're not quite sure what they're worried about, but then they follow that statement up with, we've lost hope. They've grown cynical of leaders. They've grown cynical of governance. And rightfully so. Uh, Much of what we've seen, you know, uh, shows that that government no longer respects us. And we we are the taxpayer. Their money, it's not their money. It's our money. And I think governments and political parties often lose sight of that.
1: One thing I saw in looking at your campaign from afar was how many longtime party stalwarts you had backing you up. So it wasn't just you and Toby; like you had a lot of people that had worked for years and years, in some cases, in some pretty key positions within the Progressive Conservative Party that said, "Nope, we're we're going with the independent this time around."
2: Yeah, I had lots of PCs uh, behind me, especially the ones that I had worked with. So, you know, between Toby and I, that's 50 years of service. And so a lot of folks who respected Toby and said, you know, Toby was disrespected in this process. And so they surrounded us. But the other um, interesting aspect of the campaign was that we had liberals and NDPs who Mm. came to our campaign and worked on it as well because they... realized they're good community-minded people sure they may have worked against us on on past campaigns but they're good community-minded people who said no this isn't right this is not the way democracy should be done and they joined my campaign and you know there was an instance last week where one of the biggest uh, liberals in in Norfolk was standing in my campaign office alongside one of the biggest NDP members and it, it was a rainy, bliss, blustery day, and, and Toby was in there as well. And, and I looked at Toby and I said, you feel like you're in the twilight zone. And everybody had a good laugh. But, um, you know, I, I truly believe that, um, you know, it was, it was really a, a, an effort of all of us uh, in Haldeman Norfolk who were just not okay with democracy being sidelined. And they had just had enough. And they said, we got to stand up to this.
1: Bobby Ann Brady, the independent MPP elect for Haldeman Norfolk in Ontario. Uh, congratulations again, and thanks so much for coming on today.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Independent MPP-elect Bobby Ann Brady. As I've always said, I find elections tend to get very routine in things that happen. So I like surprises. I like things that come about that aren't part of that major narrative, especially in, as we've talked about, this uh, uneventful, notoriously uneventful election. So um, my thanks to her for coming on. And my thanks to you for tuning in today. That does it. We will talk to you later on with more of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. I think I'm going to be back in the studio for the next show, but I try not to make any guarantees because... Well, if you've seen the airport delays, I might not even make it back to the studio before long, as we talked about yesterday, but we will see. Uh, Wish me luck, keep me in your prayers, and I will do the same for all of you. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all.
0: Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.